From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at TNTradio.live. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome welcome to the program. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. This is TNT, today's news talk. Appreciate you joining us for the next two hours live and direct. We have got news and analysis. We've got some fantastic uh, people, some great minds we're going to be bringing on to the program to discuss the most important issues of the day. We'll be pivoting hard to uh, the Middle East, of course. The situation in Gaza looks like, well, there could be an end game. Not an end game for uh, anything positive, but the Israeli end game. What do they have in mind? What are they planning to do uh, in the coming days and weeks as Ramadan approaches and Israeli forces mount uh, near Rafah at the Egyptian border crossing there with southern Gaza. What is Israel going to do? What kind of leverage do they have with Washington? We'll discuss all this uh, with our first guest, Benjamin Rubenstein, is going to be joining us uh, as well, an excellent geopolitical analyst. And then also we're going to be joined by Basil Valentine, our roving correspondent for all matters in global affairs right now, domestically and internationally. Uh, and then in the second hour, we're going to be joined by our research assistant, Christian James, uh, for a look at a couple of interesting but uh, crucial stories. One of them is the link between India and Israel. There's many links between India and Israel, both politically and militarily. Uh, but what does this have to do with farmers' protests in India? How is Israel involved? in that. This is a very revealing uh, story, and it'll give you kind of a look in uh, as to how some of these same situations seem to be popping up all over the planet, even in the United States. How is this Israeli connection uh, forged uh, between law enforcement agencies and governments around the world using drone technology and other sort of anti-protest and uh, protest suppression uh, technologies. All that we're going to cover with Christian James in the second hour. Certainly that's going to be a fascinating conversation. You don't want to miss that. Uh, Now, uh, we're going to look at uh, the two-year anniversary of the Ukrainian conflict for a moment and also just some interesting developments uh, with the Russian Federation. Uh, We're broadcasting from Moscow uh, for the next few days, Uh, so we appreciate you guys uh, joining us as well. And uh, the Russian president uh, has made some interesting statements, uh, Vladimir Putin. He's saying uh, that there's escalatory rhetoric coming from the United States and the EU. Uh, What's he talking about? Well, these are sort of discussions be they veiled, uh, be they indirect, but nonetheless alluding to the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, Now, this has become more more of a common theme uh, in the last couple of years. Some put it down to bluster of politicians, pundits. I mean, do they really mean it? Yes, all the superpowers have nuclear weapons, but who's going to be prepared to use them? And what does that mean in terms of escalation in World War III? Well, uh, what the Russian government is saying here is interesting. The Western officials are, uh, quote, indulging uh, escalatory rhetoric and that they should realize uh, that invoking the specter of an all-out nuclear war is problematic uh, from a diplomatic point of view, uh, but also it just kind of speaks to the lack of communication that we are currently becoming used to uh, with conflicts like Ukraine, but also let's look at the situation in Gaza uh, as well. So Putin addressed this topic uh, during 
his State of the Union speech uh, in the Russian Federation. And this is an important event, obviously, uh, in terms of laying out uh, the positions, uh, especially at a time when this sort of conflict in Ukraine is still raging on. And there are threats that NATO is going to escalate. The Emmanuel Macron's comments about putting uh, conscription or French troops on the ground uh, in Ukraine uh, it has raised a lot of eyebrows uh, in that respect. Uh, but uh, what is this about nukes and how this is sort of the conversations just kind of careening uh, out of control? So what are the consequences for this? Well, uh, it really means that you're going to have a very, very difficult time dialing back the tensions. And this is the big fear. Where do we go from here? NATO Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg uh, has said that, uh, quote, there are no plans for NATO uh, to put combat troops on the ground in Ukraine. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, has also uh, emphasized a similar position, no ground troops, no soldiers on Ukrainian soil uh, who are sent there by European or NATO countries now or in the future. Well, that's what they're saying, uh, but uh, is that exactly what's going to happen? Is that going to be the case? Uh, things could change from one month to the next. Polish leaders, uh, people in the Czech Republic, Sweden, Finland, two new NATO additions uh, as well, they're all making the same sort of statements, these assurances that will, they won't be deploying ground troops. So some of this is a, a reaction to Emmanuel Macron's untoward comments, which he's been totally lambasted for uh, over the last couple of days. Uh, but you can kind of take this, I think, with a pinch of salt. It seems more like optics and messaging right now. They want to show that, at least to their voters at home, it's going to be a very unpopular uh, subject for politicians in Europe to be committing ground troops in Ukraine, for instance. Not something you want to say, especially ahead of an election. But uh, later on in the year, who knows? Uh, that rhetoric could become reality uh, as the political situation changes or new governments administrations come into power uh, during the year. And then obviously they're able to exert a free hand, if you will, uh, to step up uh, things. And you could definitely deploy troops uh, in in and around Ukraine uh, without, uh, let's say, escalating uh, on this sort of combined warfare front. Uh, but it's really just like positioning more NATO troops in there uh, to create, who knows, a Cassius Belli or something like that. But again, this isn't something you'd want to be announcing uh, publicly. So they're currently walking all that back. But that doesn't mean it's not going to happen in the future. And I think that's the important point uh, that we want to make here. Now, in addition, uh, this is interesting, this relationship between Israel uh, and Russia, uh, Israel and Moscow. Israel's not happy. They don't. They feel like they're not getting the support from the Russian Federation, and the representatives in the United Nations have accused Russia, the Russian government, of siding with the forces of, quote, destabilization. Why are they saying this? Uh, they're claiming that Russia has sided with the enemies of the free world. This is what the Israeli delegation is saying on the floor of the United Nations uh, in the last 24 hours. Their permanent representative uh, to the UN uh, has said that uh, there's global instability in the air and Russia's siding with those forces that are weaponizing these uh, various institutions against Israel, including the UN. And the country's permanent representative has just kind of gone ballistic uh, in, in, in the UN. Uh, Gilad Erdan's accusations 
uh, are being uh, labeled by Moscow as delirium. So they're saying there's not much to this. Israel is sort of losing their mind a little bit on this. You can call it hostile rhetoric. Uh, you can call it sort of, who knows, uh, dramatics. There's a lot of that going on in the UN uh, these days. Uh, we can get into that later. But the senior diplomat here has uh, tossed according to reports here, multiple accusations at the Russians in a speech at the UN General Assembly uh, in New York uh, this week. So it marked the two-year anniversary of the conflict in Ukraine. Obviously, a lot of this stuff is coming to the surface right now, looking back two years. And he's he's basically, and this is the most bizarre analysis you could possibly, from, from an envoy, uh, imagine your country's top diplomat is is equating Russia with Hamas believe it or not, and criticizing Moscow for uh, having contacts with Palestinian uh, militant or resistance organizations and so forth. So they're saying that both of our countries, Ukraine and Israel, are fighting a battle for our survival. Now we're living in an era which forces of instability act with impunity uh, against international law. International law be damned, morality be damned, and peace and security be damned. That's a bit, well, let's just be honest, ladies and gentlemen, that's a bit rich uh, coming from Israel, invoking international law. How many UN resolutions are there against Israel that haven't been implemented uh, by the great powers? Uh, so uh, morality, international law, are they seriously going to pull those cards? But yet the Israeli delegation at the UN is pulling those cards and they are saying it, uh, making it all the more meaningless, especially in light of South Africa's case in the International Courts of Justice and the ICJ. It's really kind of drawn a line under this whole situation, which unfortunately is still not resolved. I don't believe, and neither do a lot of other experts in the Middle East, that they're going to be any closer to a ceasefire this weekend, as Joe Biden was alluding to, as he was licking his pistachio ice cream with uh, Seth Meyers, uh, an American comedian who conducted a softball interview with the octogenarian uh, Joe Biden. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm not telling you anything new here. Uh, I'm just repeating what a lot of other people are saying uh, in terms of this president, his uh, cognitive wherewithal. It's not a secret, folks. Uh, even Democrats are polling uh, extremely high uh, as to uh, the those who believe that Joe Biden should not run, should not run for for president uh those who believe he should run in his own party it is like dipping way below 40 percent uh so not doing well there it is an election year so we'll see what happens anyway at the moment we're going to take a break with tnt today's news talk when we come back uh, we're going to connect with benjamin rubenstein our first guest and we're going to go back to the middle east and really do a deep dive on where things are at on the ground and what we can expect going forward i'm patrick Henningsen, your host we'll be right back TNT's Jason Olborn. Donald Trump today defeated Nikki Haley in South Carolina, some 61 to 39 percent in that primary event there, which almost secures him the obviousness that he's going to be the Republican candidate. And Nikki Haley, as many might know, was the governor of South Carolina and she couldn't hold that state. And yet she persists in hanging in there, almost white-handing the system and just being one of those hands that looks like she's representing the globalist interests rather than the interests of the people who are supporting the Republicans, which is anything but pro-establishment. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. The Irish government is proposing a law known as the Hate Speech Bill that threatens free speech. 
this law could have dire consequences for our democracy. Next week, next month, next month, and then on to the next week. This law will have uncertain effects on artistic and musical expression. Please support us. It could stifle the activity of public campaigning on political and civil issues and also curtail speech relating to topics about religion, ethnicity, sex and gender. You could even be jailed for possessing documents, cartoons or memes on your devices, even if you never read them or intended on sharing them. Mere possession could make you a criminal under this law. Help stop this law. Visit www.freespeechireland.ie forward slash take action to bin the hate speech bill. Internet. Internet. A stream online. TNT Radio.live. Today's news talk radio. TNT. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to TNT, today's news talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you for rejoining us. We're still in the first hour of this live broadcast, coming to you live and direct here. Uh, in the next two hours, we'll be covering in the top international stories as well as some closer to home. If you're in the West, uh, we'll be talking about some domestic stories in the UK, Europe, but also in the United States. However, the big story of the moment in the world right now, uh, especially for the last going on five months, if you can believe it, uh, the crisis in Gaza. We really can't call it a war, uh, especially after South Africa has uh, filed their uh, interim uh, motion uh, to basically label this uh, what it is, according to the facts and the receipts that everyone can really see clearly now, which is a genocide. So it's not a war going on in Gaza. It is literally a genocide against the people under occupation, the native Palestinian population in the region under an illegal occupation. As we said, uh, how many UN resolutions have been passed that have not been implemented to stop this very situation that we see spinning out of control right now and is there any end is but the end game in terms of what israel's plans are uh, does look like it is coming to fruition right now things are clarifying for those of us watching here and we are watching in horror at what is unfolding it's quite unbelievable i want to bring on our next guest uh to do a little bit more of a deep dive on this i want to bring on benjamin rubenstein he's a political analyst uh he is american uh but he does cover uh, multiple international regions i want to bring him on to the show benjamin thank you for joining us on tnt thanks for bringing me on patrick benjamin we're very concerned uh to put it lightly uh, at the situation that is building right now uh, at the Rafa uh, border crossing area. The statements made by Israel, highly inflammatory. Uh, and if we look at the situation as it's unfolded over the last couple of months, uh, we see a pattern emerging. I want to get your take on how you're seeing this situation. You talking, you, you've talked about the, uh, the end game for Israel. Explain to us what that means and how this is, process is is shaping up right before our eyes right now. Well, the end game for Israel is really the recolonization of the Gaza Strip. I mean, it is already colonized, but they want settlers living there again, Zionist settlers living there again. They want beachfront properties. They want hotels and they want that area in general. They want to get rid of Palestinian resistance entirely, despite the fact that Palestinians have a right to resist. So they're pushing them closer and closer to the Egyptian border. 
And the end game is to push them across into Egypt. So it's, they become Egypt's problem. And that is not a problem Egypt wants, but Egypt has a very weak economy and relies on foreign aid from Uncle Sam in order to make their uh, country run. And so that's the end game. The end game is to get rid of the Palestinians. Egypt has slowly uh, become more quiet regarding the acceptance of Palestinians. There's rumors that they're building a refugee camp on the other side of the border. Uh, so it seems like Egypt, like uh, many Arab states, are just caving to the pressure from uh, the United States and Zionists and the Zionist entities. So unfortunately, it seems like the only thing in the way is a possible further escalation in the north from Hezbollah. Uh, whether that'll come to fruition or not is is to be seen, but it does sort of remind me of Ukraine in the way that uh, we, we sort of see, you know, oh, we disagree with them bombing hospitals, we disagree with them using dumb bombs, but eventually it's just, it creates space for those very things to happen. Uh, so you see a steady backpedaling on any sort of uh, bureaucratic tape that the Biden administration uh, says they're imposing on Israel. In the meantime, apparently, according to Aaron Brushnell's friend, there are actually possibly U.S. special forces fighting inside Gaza tunnels. So it's hard to actually believe anything the Biden administration says regarding Israel and in general. But on this case specifically, they seem to be completely discredited. Just uh, walk us through the situation. I know you've been following this uh, very closely from the beginning. Uh, to what what has happened? This uh, amazing tragedy that's unfolded since October seventh uh, last fall. Now, uh, the, the the amount of internally displaced uh, Palestinians. I assume Ben that these are you know people from northern Gaza that have been pushed to the south. Uh, and Israel's attacked Khan Yunis. All these you know very large, high, densely populated refugee camps as well in southern gaza as well so you have what how many refugees being pushed right down south to the egyptian border and what what is israel planning to do uh and and what what possible justification could they have for attacking a densely populated area with you know how many hundreds of thousands of internally displaced palestinians with nowhere to go I believe there are close to 1.8 million displaced Palestinians within the Gaza Strip, and most of them are now concentrated towards the border, which they've been slowly pushing them into uh, from from the other side of the Gaza Strip. Now, it's it seems that the the death toll is approaching 30,000, and so I mean that's still a large portion of the population, but. You do have that nearly 2 million people at the border. And what is going to happen with those people is, is hard to imagine because on one hand, Egypt needs the money from the United States. But on the other hand, are they really just going to accept 2 million, nearly 2 million refugees? I mean, that just sounds like that sounds like a national security threat to Egypt. That sounds like an existential problem for Egypt. So, I, you know, a, a part of me wonders if eventually these, it's horrible to say, but eventually these 2 million 
or so Palestinians are just going to be pinned in between two armies, basically shooting at them uh, until there's none left. And, you know, Joe Biden doesn't he he seems to be arrogant when it comes to this. He seems to be going the Hillary Clinton route in terms of how this impacts his campaign. And, oh, you know, Trump is so horrible. I don't have to do anything and I'm going to win. Uh, and I just don't think that's the case. The unfortunate reality is Trump probably won't be much better, but maybe he would be willing to make a deal because that is what he likes to talk about being known for. So the end game is, is, is stark. It's not looking good. Uh, I, I am not particularly hopeful that this resolves in any, uh, sort of just way. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, we've, uh, in, in conversations with, uh, you know, some of the top, um, diplomats and ministers, uh, and as well from the Middle East, uh, in recent days. And, uh, this question was posed to them as well. You know, how do you see the end, uh, coming on this? And their answer, unfortunately, was an exasperation. It's never going to end. Uh, and they're really just talking that this is just going to be a slow grind, uh, for the next, you know, five, 10, 20, 30 years, and that's uh, in the end, this is what the United States wants. They want this to be an unstable region. Um, they want uh, Israel to be constantly at war with all of its neighbors, uh, which they have been consistently attacking all of their neighbors over the years, and this all is absolutely fine for the West. So uh, you could call this, Ben, could you, could you say this, a low-intensity, long-term conflict? If it settled into something like that, that would be to the liking of Washington long term. I mean, I don't, it's hard to see a solution coming out of this currently. There's a lot of talk by the, by Washington about two state solution. They keep throwing that one out. Uh, doesn't seem to be a lot of take up on that though, for people on the ground anymore. Um, where, where, where can we expect things to head uh, in, in the long term on this when there's really, doesn't look like there's not much going on uh, in the short term. It's very frustrating. Actually, you know, I, I think the the idea that this would continue for sort of 10 to 20 years is a huge uh, mistake. I, I don't think that's correct at all. I think uh, while it is, uh, you know, seemingly less intense than it was, you know, in previous months, I, I th and that could be considered relatively low intensity. I mean, in the first two months, there was like 20,000 dead. Now it's five months and there's 10,000 dead, more dead. So, you know, maybe they're, they're operating at half the intensity or, you know, a third of the intensity, but they're still slaughtering thousands of civilians and women and children. So I don't know if I'd call that low intensity, especially because this isn't like Ukraine or Afghanistan where low intensity means low intensity across a, a, a wide region, a massive area. This is the Gaza Strip. It's one of the most densely uh, populated areas in the world. It's a rev relatively short piece of land. I mean, you can literally bike across it in uh, well under a day. Uh, so the idea that low intensity in Gaza is a thing, I, I don't think is true. And I, I, and I think that, you know, we're in ter terms of the long term, I think we're looking at two to three years at most 
before the situation, before either they're all, all the Palestinians are dead or the situation takes some sort of drastic turn, which it could end up doing uh, down the line. I don't see that in the immediate uh, future. I, I don't also see uh, a ceasefire coming into fruition. Um, and I've explained this before to you, Patrick, you know, Hamas has basically nothing less to, left to lose. They'd rather die than, uh, you know, give up any shot at uh, reclaiming their territory. Um, and Netanyahu has nothing left to lose. The second this war ends, he's he's on the outs uh, and he's losing popularity within Israeli society. So, you know, neither side looks to be willing to negotiate. Um, and, you know, to, to be clear, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, Hezbollah, I, rather Hamas, should be doing anything other than fighting back and saying, listen, if you completely withdraw from the Gaza Strip, we'll give you your hostages back. That seems like a very fair deal to me at this point in the uh, situation. That seems almost more than fair. Uh, you know, of course, innocent people should never be harmed, but uh, you know, we're looking at 30,000 innocent Palestinians having been killed and tens of thousands more being gravely wounded. So, uh, you know, the, the situation is definitely at a, uh, at a, a stalemate right now. It's just going to be a some, somewhat creeping, relatively low intensity situation. And I see that continuing at least until um, the elections in the United States. So you saw this theater uh, with Joe Biden uh, this week, uh, licking his ice cream cone with Seth Meyers uh, there and basically saying, oh, we think there's going to be a ceasefire uh, uh, by Monday, uh, working on something, you know, a few licks on the ice cream cone and a few sound bites. Is, is this all just theater, uh, Ben? Because obviously this is a hot button election issue. Uh, Democrats completely tanked in uh, Dearborn, Michigan, uh, and some of these really kind of interesting uh, swing state uh, uh, enclaves there, uh, looking at the general election, what that might mean for the Democrats. But uh, isn't this, is this just a lot of theater here? Are, are they really serious? Is the White House really working on a, a viable ceasefire plan, uh, or are we just going to get more of this uh, in regular intervals uh, right through the election cycle? I, uh, what do you think? Well, I do think they're working on a ceasefire plan and, and there are ongoing negotiations, but the term, the key word you use is viable. And to that, I would say no, absolutely not. I think it is mostly theater uh, to try to make it look like, uh, oh, we're powerless to stop Israel uh, from slaughtering civilians when in the meantime, they're sending them the weapons. And the, the, these negotiations aren't going to become viable until we're willing to cut off the flow of weaponry uh, and, and money to Israel. They should pay for their own health care. Uh, it's, it's, it's a hard sell for Joe Biden to be funding Israeli healthcare, while Americans are, you know, one of the most popular issues in the country is universal healthcare. Uh, so that's that's quite the contradiction that Joe Biden has to contend with. Uh, he just he's just doing theater. He's doing theater for his campaign. If this wasn't a, uh, an election season, I'm sure he'd be sending them even more bombs than he is already.
What do you think about this uh, election result? I don't know if you caught the uh, uh, the primaries there for the Democrats, uh, Dearborn, Michigan, and obviously heavily uh, populated with uh, people of Middle Eastern descent, a lot of Lebanese, a uh, big Muslim population there, uh, basically saying no tell, none of the above, uh, not voting for anybody, making that known, what they call spoiling the ballot, as it used to be called, uh, that outranking any votes uh, in favor of Joe Biden. I mean, this is devastating, uh, if you think about it. It's kind of a bellwether signal there, do you think, for other places uh, around the country? And if so, uh, is this uh, going to be enough to kind of destabilize the Democrats in a general election? Well, there is some hope there, actually, you know, before all this started on October 7th or even before then, but before it became a global phenomenon, uh, you know, Joe Biden was not sitting pretty. He was not sitting comfortable. He was already, uh, you know, there was already a lot of talk about like this guy has no chance come elections. Uh, And so I think, you know, Dearborn has a a large Muslim population. And that has definitely played an impact. And it's funny, you see the same sort of things you do every year. Oh, a vote for Bernie is a vote for Trump or, okay, you're not voting for anyone or you're abstaining in some way. That's a vote for Trump too. But it seems to ring a bit more hollow uh, this time around because everybody knows there's an ongoing genocide and Everyone knows at the end of the day, Joe Biden is responsible. You can't, it's, it's very hard to convince an American who has grown up their entire lives believing America is exceptional, believing America is the most powerful country in the world. We're the, we're the, we're the people who ensure morality. And then somehow we're powerless to stop a genocide or powerless to stop sending our own bombs. Uh, to to commit genocide, it's it doesn't make sense. And you know the American people, they are propagandized, and there is an ongoing struggle against that propaganda. But they're not that stupid. Uh, they can connect. You know, one plus one is always going to equal two. So I do think that is going to hurt Joe Biden. Uh, it's going to make him look weaker than he has for some time now. And I don't see him pulling away with a victory. I see this having an impact uh, throughout the election. Yeah, no, certainly we're, we're seeing a similar trend, interestingly, uh, Ben, in the UK, uh, where people are just completely you know, disowning the Labour Party on this uh, because of their sort of you know, complete like devotion uh, to the Netanyahu government and this sort of Likudite uh, co- far-right coalition. Uh, Keir Starmer, supposed to be a, a liberal, I guess, uh, he's basically being completely disowned by a lot of staunch Labour supporters, but they're not going to vote Tory, uh, just like in America, they're not. It doesn't mean just because they're spoiling their ballot, they're going to be voting Republican. Some might vote for Trump, roll the dice, if you will. But in the UK, they're just not voting. Period. And this, this was this is a fait accompli in the polls just six months ago. Labor was going to romp through a general election. Now eh, it's not so clear. Uh, so this, this is a bit of a political crisis because even if you're against the war, Ben. Uh, even you're against this uh, awful genocide, you know, as a voter, what can you do? Where do you go? 
uh, you know, just short of, I don't know, a complete revolution uh, in these countries. I, I don't see that happening. But there's not there's not a lot in terms of leveraging a better option. It's literally you have to sit you're going to sit it out and maybe punish uh, a party that you believe like labor or the Democrats that should be championing human rights uh, traditionally. And they're not. It's a very precarious political situation. I, I, I think this is going to be very negative in general for uh, politics, potentially in the West, in these sort of so-called democracies. Benjamin, what do you make of this? And what what, what does this mean going forward? Uh, is it, Are we looking at a, some, some kind of a new crisis in democracy over this issue? Well, I mean, it depends on who you ask. Uh, for people like you and me, I would certainly call it a crisis. Uh, p- voters are going to are, are walking down the road of despair uh, without a viable option to express their needs. When you ask the ruling class, I'm sure that they, you know, they they benefit from that sort of mass nihilism that can result from a situation like this. Uh, they don't want people politically involved. They want people being like sitting back in their chairs and saying, okay, you know, I, there's nothing I can do to change the situation. I can't hold my government accountable. There's no way for me to do that. But that is not the case. What is the case is that we need people to start running for local offices, start challenging Zionists in their home states, wherever they can. And we need people to get more involved locally. It can't, and I've said this before to you, Patrick, it can't just be online. You have to get involved locally. You have to support your, you know, if you like, for an example, Jose Vega, he's very famous on online for disrupting, you know, these sort of warmongers uh, that, that are, that come by, you know, the Bronx and he shows up and he disrupts their event. And now he's challenging Richie Torres for his seat in the Bronx. So, you know, that is exactly what we need to have more of. And we need people, if you're in the Bronx, if you're in New York city, go support Jose. You know, if you're somewhere else, find somebody who's similar to Jose. Maybe they don't have the same name recognition, but maybe they have good politics. Maybe they're an anti-Zionist. And that is the way that we can create hope uh, that we can someday actually have a change because it, we, uh, as you said, Patrick, we can't rely on either party to do what's right by us and do what's right by the world and people who are suffering under the boot of colonialism. So, you know, as I said, just try to get more involved. That's all we can do. And don't give in to nihilism because, you know, a better world is possible. We've seen radical changes throughout history and we've seen that no empire lasts forever. That is a historical fact. And so, you know, if we take it upon ourselves to get involved, however possible, we can be that change. No, and there's the independent route too. Uh, New York State, you have uh, Diane Sayre, who's running as an independent U.S. Senate candidate against Chuck Schumer last cycle. I think she's running again. And George Galloway threw his hat in the ring uh, with the Rochdale by-election. He looks like he has uh, a good shot uh, at winning yeah. as, for the for the Workers' Party of Britain. Uh, so this can be disruptive as well, going the independent route. Um, so there are there are options there, and there are people getting involved, as you said. Um, and I think you know even to disrupt 
the two-party duopoly. Uh, you know, to filibuster one MP or one uh, congressman, uh, independent, whatever, filibustering on the floor of the legislation on a major issue and doing that on a regular basis, that's a, that, that, that is that—that is enough to potentially uh, awaken a lot of people on some issues. So you, you're right, Ben. Uh, you, you don't want to sort of uh, succumb to nihilism, uh, even though it's arguably a very dark time uh, in Western democracy. There are still roots uh, to be effective and to be an agent of change. So we uh, we, we can't give up hope. Uh, but yeah, I completely agree with you on that, Ben. Yeah, you know, I think I have a little more hope for sooner change in the United Kingdom than I do in the United States, particularly because of George Galloway. After Jeremy Corbyn's failure, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people were left veering towards that nihilism. But George, uh, you know, doesn't hold any punches. He's not a fence sitter. He's not going to sit on the fence with issues like Zionism. The Zionist lobby destroyed Jeremy Corbyn's campaign. But George Galloway, and, and they were able to do that because, you know, give an inch, take a mile, right? And that's what exactly what happened. Jeremy Corbyn gave him an inch and they took a mile and they destroyed him. But Galloway isn't going to let that happen. I think Galloway, as the years go on, there's a real path uh, for him up the ladder. And per perhaps someday we'll see a, a prime minister Galloway in the United Kingdom. And that would be something that would greatly benefit the people of the world. Yep, yep, certainly, certainly. There are some big things happening in Europe as well. Some surprises we've seen in the last 12 months uh, on the electoral front. So things are possible, depending on where you're at, what country you're in, uh, different systems, different parliamentary systems in different countries. There's always opportunities uh, to get it in and to become a disruptor, to become uh, an agent of change. We need to change some of these policies. So you do got to get involved to make that happen. I'm with Benjamin Rubenstein, political analyst right now. Now, let's take a break, however, with the network TNT Today's News Talk. When we come back, uh, we'll continue our look at the situation uh, in the Middle East more broadly. Uh, we're also going to look at uh, the potential for uh, instability in Asia as well, what that means going forward. You see noises being made still by a lot of U.S. politicians regarding China and Taiwan. I want to get Ben's take on that as well. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Stay right there. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. So here's an interesting little tidbit. The month of February in the United States has had 132 all-time record highs. Now, let's assume 100 years ago, it was just as warm as the weather that has set these all-time record highs. How many stations do you think would have had record highs? See what I'm saying? There are a lot more stations established across the United States now than there were 100 years ago, than there were 50 years ago, than there were 20 years ago. Some of the stations that broke their all-time record highs have had historical records of only 30 to 40 years. Now, that does not mean it was not an impressive display of warmth in the month of February. But let's say these record highs occurred just a couple of days ago. Well, most of the places that had those record highs had 40 to 60 degree temperature drops in the following couple of days. We've got wildfires going on in the Texas Panhandle where it's likely to snow tomorrow night 
at least at times. It may snow into Dallas tomorrow night. So the weather is capable of wild swings. Now that is still a fantastic fact that 132 all-time record highs were set in the month of February in the United States. However, you still have to put it in perspective. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Are you ready to help your family get prepared for the unexpected? Here we go! Ladybug and Cat Noir know how important it is to be ready because you never know when Hawk Moth is going to strike or a disaster will hit. And you don't need miraculous powers. Just put those planning skills you already have to good use. Make a plan that will help you and your family be ready when emergencies happen. Ready Kids can help. Get started at ready.gov kids. You're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, folks, welcome back. Welcome back. We're still in hour number one in this live broadcast. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We're live and direct here for two hours with TNT Today's News Talk. We are talking about geopolitics, but specifically the absolute uh, incredible inflamed crisis. It gets getting more and more precarious and dangerous uh, in the Middle East, especially for the native Palestinian population currently uh, under attack, under siege by the Israeli occupiers. And I'm using these terms not in any pejorative way, folks. Uh, I'm just really going by the uh, uh, 1,000 plus uh, statements and resolutions and memorandums that have come out of the United States, uh, United Nations in the last uh, you know 75 years here to describe the situation is just completely out of control right now. I really can't believe that this has not been uh, at least resolved temporarily in five months. We're going on five months now. I'm with Benjamin Rubenstein. He's a political analyst covering international affairs. Now, Ben, one of the interesting things about the Gaza-Palestinian issue is in the past when we've had a conversation about this with our uh, you know, Asian uh, associates and colleagues or looking at the international relations scholars or uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party, their leadership, their foreign minister and so forth, they've always been agnostic on Israel and Gaza. It just doesn't have the relevance for a country like China. Uh, it's you know an Abrahamic religion uh, kind of based conflict. It's not something China is that interested in. Certainly Japan, uh, the same. Uh, but all of a sudden, uh, they are taking a position on it. China is now taking very, you know, uh, defined stark positions on this conflict, and in some in a way that maybe is different than what they would have said in the past. They seem to give some deference to Israel in previous years, but it doesn't look like that's happening anymore. Quite the opposite, in fact. They're clearly siding with the Palestinians on multiple levels. First of all, uh, what's your take on this? What do you see? And what do you think this means uh, going forward? Well, it is sort of a shift from the status quo. And I think it's, you know, it's, you're right. They were agnostic for quite, for, for many, many years. And of course, they always supported the two-state solution. But now they're saying, I believe it was Wang Yi, uh, who said, uh, you know, they have the right to armed resistance, which they do under international law. Uh, as an occupied entity, they do have a right to armed resistance. It's nice to see China recognize that. And China isn't the only one. Russia is a Zionist 
country. They're a, Zion, they're a Zionist in the, the ruling elite. Lavrov himself is a Zionist, and we've even seen them start to move on this issue because they recognize that there is a, a, is a, is a genocide going on. And even people in Russia are waking up to that issue, to this issue as well. They're starting to see that, listen, this is, this is not acceptable. And, uh, and they're, they're on the side of humanity at the end of the, the day. And so you're seeing that from Russia, you're seeing that from China. Um, and I, I, I do think it is a result of the sort of uh, global awakening on this issue that we've seen. Uh, sure, I, a lot of these people have their own personal beliefs in the upper echelons of these countries, uh, but that doesn't always uh, extend itself to their diplomatic lines uh, or public policy. It is starting to now, it seems. So I think that is uh, very promising, but I don't think, you know, unfortunately, well, fortunately, I should say, Russia and China are not sending bombs that kill children to Israel. So they don't have too much influence on the situation as a whole. What they can do to an extent is support the resistance. You know, uh, Russia just hosted a meeting of, uh, it was more than 10, I believe maybe 18, Palestinian organizations uh, in Moscow. That's very promising. There are uh, talks about Hamas possibly joining the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which is basically uh, the government uh, in a more sort of convoluted fashion. Um, so if Hamas were to you know, stop uh, any sort of, or ha Hamas and Fatah were, to sort of start working together. There is a path there. Uh, hopefully that pans out. That would be fantastic to see uh, a sort of agreement on the administration of, uh, of Palestine between Fatah and Hamas um, under the Palestinian Liberation Organization. In terms of China itself, you know, China understands that they're, they're next. <laughs> and they understood that with Ukraine too. Uh, so, you know, they don't, they understand that if Israel is weakened, then they're in a stronger position when it comes to things like Taiwan. Uh, and because at the end of the day, the Israeli state is sort of just a satellite for the United States to project power. Uh, many people don't re actually realize this, but Israel is actually in Asia. So, um, you know, projecting power into the Asian region as a whole is 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 a concern for uh, for China when it comes to the United States. And we won't call it the Middle East, Ben. We'll call it West Asia. How about that? Uh, we'll start using that term. Uh, that should be the new lingua franca uh, for yeah, the we'll region. We'll have to but... antagonize the Israelis by <laughs> telling them they want to be Asians and see how they respond to that. Yeah, West Asians. Uh, yeah, they don't look very West Asian uh, to me. But uh, hey, you know, time will tell. Um, the, but on the Chinese uh, front, what, what's interesting about this issue? And uh, I had this conversation recently with uh, uh, an international relations scholar uh, from, from the Middle East. And, you know, there's always this talk in the West, Ben. You've probably heard this uh, you know, always characterizing the Chinese as immoral, uh, godless people, transactional. They don't uh, have any sort of feeling or compassion for human rights, very didactic, you know. And so their position on, on Gaza 
just basically belies all of those assumptions and shows that actually no uh, issues of, of high morality uh, and human rights and things like this, crimes against humanity, China is very vo uh, vocal on. They do have strong feelings and positions on this. So this kind of just really obliterates all of these Western assumptions that are used to justify, uh, you know, treating China as if it's this sort of big, bad, monolithic, uh, you know, evil entity. Um, th that to me is one of the, and it took the issue of Gaza to make that happen. Um, I, South Africa opened the door, of course, and big, big credit to South Africa on that. But uh, what do you think about that? Because I, I see that as a major change in uh, looking at this, the, the Chinese, basically, uh, in the international uh, system. Well, it's first of all, it's astounding to me that an American could think of another group as transactional. <laughs> I mean, I think Americans are just about the most transactional people on the planet. Uh, that being said, I, I do think uh, there is a, uh, somewhat of a, a moral awakening happening throughout the world as a result of this genocide against Palestine. And I think that that extends to the Chinese as well. The Chinese are saying, listen, this is horrible. I mean, everyone's seeing the photos of the kids getting killed with their arms missing and, and, and faces messed up. It's it's just horrifying to think about. And I, I think anybody who is a real you know person with a conscience uh, is going to end up speaking out about that in whatever capacity they're able to. Uh, so, you know, I think I'm not too surprised to see the Chinese uh, speaking out against this. And I do think that, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're increasingly global leaders. They're increasingly taking the charge on the world stage, uh, as is Russia alongside them. Uh, so I think that this is just another instance of, uh, of a declining empire. And, you know, when there, when there's a power vacuum or a vacuum, a moral vacuum, at the end of the day, someone's going to fill it. And it's going to be China and Russia in this case, and it's going to be South Africa because of their history. Uh, and and this is sort of the inevitable process of, of, of a waning empire. China is on the rise. Their economy is is growing. Their, their, their cities, you know, I, I was in Moscow uh, maybe half a year ago, a little bit more. And, you know, what I saw in Moscow just... Uh, it was it was sort of a life changing experience for me because I'm accustomed to see cities being sort of <laughs> dirty and dangerous and non functional. That is the exact opposite of of what I saw in Moscow. And anyone who saw the Tucker Carlson interview has has seen that. But I personally went through the same sort of radicalization that Tucker Carlson went through. Uh, and it's just a shame to me that he's not willing to go to China and give it that same uh, you know opportunity because I think that he would see China and view their functionality in their cities and their cleanliness uh, and, and their safety in their cities. And maybe it's to even a, a greater level than Moscow itself, uh, just due to the, the massive public investment that has gone on there. Uh, and I, you know, I don't think that that uh, is something that you can keep hidden from people uh, across the world. People are, are increasingly looking to China because they're seeing these ultra fast trains. They're seeing these ultra clean cities with this functionality, uh, these livable prices, you know, and it's worth mentioning that China has a, 
accomplished basically the greatest feat in human history, which is to take over 800 million people out of absolute poverty. And that is something that even the United Nations recognizes. So I think China is definitely setting itself uh, apart from the from the United States as a, a moral global leader. And you don't have to no. agree with everything they do. But for the most part, they're doing it right. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And I think that's uh, that's going to help uh, in terms of, you know, that we do need global leadership on some of these major issues. Uh, large, powerful countries, uh, UN Security Council members, uh, willing to, able to assert themselves, uh, not only in the UN Security Council, but also internationally to back up their positions with uh, perhaps uh, hard power, soft power. Uh, so, yeah, China is definitely stepping into that role uh, more often as a sort of you know chief negotiator, becoming that honest broker that a lot of people regarded the United States as uh, for so long, uh, Ben. And so at the moment, there is a massive vacuum for a superpower that is an honest broker, because I think the United States has really left that vacuum uh, wide open, because let's face it, the reality just has not lived up to the rhetoric. Uh, in recent years. And I think a lot of international actors have recognized this. Uh, so while the U.S. wants to talk and, you know, take these sort of, you know, moralistic stances or virtue signaling uh, at the U.N. Security Council uh, from the White House pulpit, if you will, uh, Tony Blinken doing his uh, version of shuttle diplomacy. Uh, but a lot of countries just aren't buying it. Uh, but yet when China takes this position, they're not getting nearly the the sort of uh, condemnation or people aren't, you know, trolling them uh, the way the United States is being trolled uh, on the international scene. I mean, it's almost embarrassing uh, the sort of reactions that U.S. State Department spokespersons get uh, after press briefings. Tony Blinken has just become somewhat of a sideshow uh, internationally. Nobody's really respecting uh, any of these diplomats, but that's not the way that the Chinese are being treated or the or the Indians for that matter. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely another level of sophistication uh, in terms of the analysis, uh, in terms of how they're looking at policies, what, what positions these countries are taking in relation to, let's say, conflicts in the Middle East. Um, this is a very, very different playing field now in 2024, uh, much, much different than, you know, just even a few years ago. Uh, so I think that's probably going to manifest itself uh, in outcomes. So as as many people have said, uh, one, one journalist I spoke to today, she said, America still controls the narratives, but they don't control the outcomes. And I think that was a very true statement by this individual. Uh, just a couple minutes left, uh, Let's throw Taiwan into the frame, Ben. Uh, what do you see there? It's been somewhat quiet on this uh, issue in recent months. Not a lot of talk about that, but could this uh, emerge as a sort of election cycle talking point later in the year? And if so, is that a prelude to something next next year, the next administration? Well, you know, I think you're you're absolutely right. I think that for Republicans, it's much better from the, in their view, to sort of take the pressure off of Israel and, and redirect everything towards China. And if Trump wins, and I believe he will, he would much rather uh, put pressure on Taiwan and make a deal, <laughs> as, as he loves to do. You know, if he wants to make a deal with China, 
and maybe that will come as the result of a refocusing on Taiwan, which, I, of course, I am not advocating for refocusing on Taiwan. I think we should leave China to deal with Taiwan how it seems fit. It is, I, you know, the one China policy is internationally recognized across the world. I believe there are only five or six countries uh, that recognize Taiwan as a as a independent state. Even the country I live in, Nicaragua, just uh, two years ago, I believe right after the 2020 elections, uh, stopped recognizing Taiwan and uh, endorsed the one China policy and even turned over the embassy to China. Uh, and that is some, and we've seen talk about that in Honduras as well. So, you know, ta Taiwan is, is becoming a less important issue on the global stage. I do believe that, that we could see the Republicans going sort of uh, into that and maybe they'll make a deal. Maybe it'll take the pressure off of Israel. So, uh, uh, you know, off the Palestinians as well. So there is some hope. Benjamin Rubenstein, we appreciate you joining us on TNT this week. Thank you for having me, Patrick. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. Top of the hour news headlines coming up and on the other side, Basil V. And